To our Nate Stairwells, um, a movie podcast. I'm Autumn, and I'm joined by Nia. Hi, I'm Neve. <laughs> Do you want me to? Just... What? Nothing. <laughs> uh, Were you going to ask? Do, Do you... should you, should I call you Neve when I introduce you on the podcast? Or, um, I mean, it's so this is the thing. I'm like having you change mm. the the pronouns and yeah. stuff. Yeah, so I guess we can say this on the podcast. Yeah, we should just say this on the podcast because I feel like people probably don't read podcast descriptions. I certainly don't. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if you don't know Nia, one, call her Neve, and two, use Fay Fair pronouns. Uh, that's all. That's a fucking PSA yeah. for y'all bitches. Yeah. Whereas if you know me, then Nia and she, her is fine. But I just want everyone to know that I'm like 
I'm I'm not binary woman. Mm-hmm. I don't think I. Again, I don't. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the distinction is for me between butch trans woman and non like binary person. But oh, whatever. Anyway, we watched two movies. We did. <laughs> <laughs> but should we do the correction first? Yeah. Let's let's okay. So keen-eared listeners and keen-eyed listeners might have noticed that on the last episode of Ornate Stairwells, we're like, there are no stairwells in this movie. And the podcast art is two characters walking down a stairwell. Well, in, in our defense, it's not a stairwell, but it is a set of stairs. The, there are steps. Um, not in our defense. It's in the best scene in the whole movie. Yeah. In our defense... I counted it was less than four seconds, the yeah. shot, where they're on the stairs. And again, like, it is stairs, but so mm-hmm. it's in the theater. Mm-hmm. They're and coming so down like, the steps into the, the into Club Silencio. Yeah, and so when I see someone, like, walking down between seats mm-hmm. during, like, in steps in a theater, I think they're in a theater, not they're in a stairwell. Right. <laughs> so I think that was also part of what happened. Yes, for sure. Um, so in light of this, we're going to correct our grade for the stairwell. I think you said a D. I I could go up, but I feel like it needs to at least be a D because it was there. Like, I feel like F is like non-existent or just like really, truly terrible. Yeah. You have to, you almost have to impress us if you're going to get an F and also feature a stairwell. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I want to say D plus because... It's a short shot. I don't think it, like, is thematically resonant, but it is part of the best scene in the movie, and so I want to bump it up from a D to a D+. I think the part that is somewhat thematically resonant is just that we have to talk about, like, going downstairs Mm -hmm. as being, like, the tragedy has happened and you're, like, going into Mm -hmm. the consequences of it and it's literally the part where the like movie is like descending into tragedy yeah Yeah. um oh i did the wrong i went to go to the spreadsheet and i did the wrong one export so yeah i've been i've been thinking about i could even do like a c minus but i just feel like it we didn't notice it we didn't notice it and that's why i feel like a d plus is appropriate yeah um, I think we so, can do D plus. Oh, yeah, here we go. Yeah, so we're updating it live. There we go. Um, by the way, if you don't remember from last week, if maybe you haven't seen Mulholland Drive, if you okay, so you're the type of person who hasn't seen Mulholland Drive, and therefore has some like hesitation about listening to the episode, but. You have apparently seen Red Peony Gabler 3 on a food match. <laughs> because you're like, yeah, I'll listen to that episode, sure. Yeah. <laughs> and it's hard to imagine you that person existing, but if you did not listen to the last episode, we're in the same room. Yeah. Also, like, I feel like the tone's probably a little different. The Pro- timing's probably. a little different. Yeah. <laughs> um But yeah. Uh, we watched two movies this weekend. We did. Um, one of them is better, but one of them I have more to say about, <laughs> I feel like. 
I'm assuming that you thought Red Peony Gambler was better, but you don't have a lot to say about it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, this makes sense. Yeah. I guess we should... So, the, the two movies we saw were... Yesterday we saw uh, I Carry You With Me, um, a 2020 um, film by Heidi Ewing. Um, and then today we watched um, Red Peony Gambler 3, Hot Afuda Match. Let's talk about I Carry You With Me first, just because we saw it first. Yeah. Um, okay, so I will explain this to the listeners, and you'll probably say, that's a really cool idea. And I need you to understand that I didn't know this was, like, the premise of the movie until Neither the credits I. were rolling. Neither did I. <laughs> I did cursory research into this movie. Mm-hmm. So what I, I knew going in mm-hmm. was it was, like, most of it was set in Mexico, but then mm-hmm. also included, like, them mm-hmm. going to New York. Yes. And it was about, like, a gay couple. It was like... Yes. The way that I imagined it is it was, like, just going to be a gay romance story, which isn't really... Mm-hmm. Yeah. It kind so, of is, but it's not, it's not, like... So... Yeah. And the, so I knew that, and then I also knew that the director mostly did documentary... Okay, okay. Um, and that this was, like, I saw this listed as, like, her first feature film, mm-hmm. which then further led me to believe that this was just going to be, like, fiction. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. So, the premise of the movie is, because at the start, you see one guy giving a monologue, and then you get flashbacks to a different person playing the same character. And in my head, what that meant was, oh, we are going to have a story that kind of cuts back and forth in time. Yeah. Um, but And they're going to have two different actors. This is the important thing. is I thought they were going to have two different actors playing these character, this character yes. in two different eras. Um, what's actually happening is that... This movie was inspired by the real-life story of a gay couple who um, emigrated from, illegally, from, I don't like... Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the term that they use, but... That is is a term that is used. Uh, I really don't like that. Anyway. Um, The... um, As someone who did, like... mm -hmm you know immigration law stuff Mm -hmm. um it is like technically outside of the legal immigration system however Mm -hmm. i was also doing that work thinking that like we should just have open borders right yes (laughs) Yes. like so yes laws can be bad it is (laughs) in fact they often are right it is like yeah, I will say they immigrated illegally because, in the strictest definition, that is true. That is yeah. what they did anyway. <laughs> Hung up but on, but also fuck the legal system, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> um. So, it is the movie is inspired by the true story of this gay couple that left Mexico in the '90s and has sort of like, and this is one of the quibbles i have with the movie sort of lived out the american dream and like their restaurant owners in new york city and like yeah. um but now it's it's very like mm-hmm. um 
quote unquote progressive like yes. dreamers. Yes. The yes. like dreamers who came here and are dreaming of a better life and like And so the thing that is happening in the movie is not that um it is a fiction film with two different like sets of actors portraying these characters at different moments, but that for most of the first half of the film you have actors playing these characters in the 90s. Yeah. And then for the back half of the film, you have, like, the actual people playing themselves in a sort of, like, fictionalized but also documentary, like, talking about their life. And there's clearly stuff that is, like, for the movie and dramatized, but there is also a lot of stuff of just, like, Here's me, like, here's, like, the director just interviewing me, and we're playing that over B-roll, you yeah. know? And so, like... Or, like, the the part where they're doing the party for the, mm-hmm. like, opening in the restaurant or whatever, that just, seemed like it was probably the real party. Yeah, that seemed like that was not, like, yeah. staged in any way. But then there were, like, scenes of them, like, going around mm-hmm. New York that really felt like it was, like, yes. let's go stage this for some B-roll. Or there's, like, the main character, um, his son who one of the main conflicts in the, in the latter part of the film is that um, he left his son in Mexico at 20 years ago and has never been never been able to return because if he did go back to Mexico, he wouldn't be able to get back to the U.S. Um, legally without or, or you know, um, could do yeah. it, could do it the way he did the first time, but at great peril, <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, so... Uh, he hasn't seen his son in 20 years, and there's a video of his son being upset with him. And I, it seems to me like that was probably just a real video of his son being pissed off, you know? Yeah. Um, so, I, it, all of that is a really ambitious and interesting idea that I wish maybe the movie made it a bit clearer before the... Because I understood this when the credits were rolling. We were watching the credits, and I was like, oh, those weren't different actors. Those were actors playing the real people. (laughs) I I had, like, a suspicion before the credits, but the credits was, like, really when it... Mm -hmm. Like, it confirmed for me. And part of the suspicion was just the fact that, like... Like, when we were watching the beginning of the movie, I was going into it being like, okay... Like, she does a lot of documentaries, Mm -hmm. and I can see how even though she's, like, doing fiction Mm -hmm. right now, you know, Mm. with, like, actors, still there are moments where the, like, editing, the way that stuff is being cut together... Absolutely. ...is, like, very much, if you were a documentary director, this is how you would approach things. Like, there's a scene where it's the act, like, the actors playing them, Mm -hmm. and there's, like, a phone call... And mm-hmm. so then we see some of the phone call in the phone booth, and then we see, like, the phone call audio is continuing, and then we get, like, B-roll of him walking away from the phone booth and, like, right. him walking around New York. Right. And that's, like, stuff that you would do in a documentary, because often the A-roll of, like, here's the audio stuff, here's the actual interview or whatever, if you just hang on that, it's just going to be, like, Stale. the same shot constantly. Yeah. And so you're going to mix in B-roll. Uh-huh. And... If you're doing a feature film, you don't have to, like, keep playing the audio and then, like, move on with the scene in mm-hmm. the same way that you do with the documentary. But she was doing that, and I was like, yeah. oh, this makes sense that, like, yeah. she comes from a documentary style. She's, like, yeah. using those tricks. Um, 
But then we get to the part where it's like, it is actual documentary footage to some degree. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was just like, wow, she's like really leaning in mm-hmm. on making this look like a documentary right now. Like the scene, really leaning in. The scene that really should have given it away to me and it didn't because I just, I didn't pick it up, but, um, is the scene where they're talking to their lawyer about their options and that it, it almost feels like that is the scene that sparks the whole rest of the movie to me. Yeah. Um, it feels like that was one of the first, it feels to me like that's one of the first things they got and everything else spins out of like this conversation with the lawyer and then this conversation in their living room about like, I am unhappy and also there's nothing I can do because if like, if I go back to Mexico, I'm not going to be able to get back to the U.S. and all this sort of stuff. Yeah. So, um, and and anyway, so all this is all this to say, I thought it was like a really good story. I thought they had really good subject matter, even if I'm like a little bit like rolling my eyes at like it is. It is a hard for me being the communist that I am to like summon the most sympathy for like business owners, even if I understand like they're business owners who come from like a very rough background, Yeah, you know? Um, I think the movie, you see a lot of characters who don't have the sort of financial success that they have in the end. But, um, like these are the characters that we focused on and like i don't feel like that's really like representative of like a lot of re- like reality yeah but at the, all that said i do think it was a good story like i think a good story was being told i think it was like an interesting story yeah well i mean i think the other thing too is just that like i mean th- this can happen with documentaries anyway mm-hmm. but like if you're thinking about like documentary as like, there's usually some sort of message that's relating to the real world. Hmm. And this one, like kind of just stops at like, Oh, look at these dreamers. They should like be able to go back to Mexico. They like, they should have Mm -hmm. a path to citizenship is really what this movie seems to be saying. Like they should just be granted citizenship and Uh they can go back to Mexico and Uh like see their home and come back here to their, you know, where they're working or at least have some like path to even travel, even if like, yes. they can't get full citizenship or something. Yeah. Like there should be like some system to, yes. to like support these people. Uh huh. But it doesn't like really have anything like fully cohesive to say about right. like the immigrant, like how do we address and like move towards a different immigration system that's not going to do this? It's kind of just yes. like, oh, these people should just be able to go home and come back and not like. It is, this system is so fucked that like they yes. they were risking their lives going through the desert to get here in the first place. Yes. And we kind of see that, but like it never like it never fully challenges that. Yeah. Other than it, just like the hardship and struggle that they went through to get here, we should support them more now. Other than one scene, you don't there's one brief scene where you see an immigration office. Mm-hmm. Um and for most, you never see a border patrol agent, you know. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it it's like a gives, helicopter up above. Yes. <laughs> and it 
sort of like, and I don't know that this is like the intention of the filmmaker, but I think this is what happens when you portray things in this way. It makes like, uh, the state is a like collective, a huge collective of people who make decisions that hurt people who want to like immigrate. Yeah. Um, and the movie does not give a face to that, does not point any fingers, does not examine why these decisions are made, why people try to stop immigration. And so it makes borders feel in the world of the film like a natural and immutable yeah. fact of life. Um, like the helicopters overhead are like a natural phenomenon and not... Yes. People who have chosen that their job is to fly in helicopters and stop people coming over from Mexico. Right, right. <laughs> Which is very different. Right. It, it's it's not how I would portray... If I was making this movie, that's just not like... I, th- I think you could make this document... I, I think you could make this movie a lot like... The hammer could come down a lot harder, I feel like. Yeah. And the other the other thing about it to me is also that um like the first half of the movie is not about this at all cuz the first half of the movie is about like the struggles of being a gay couple in Mexico in yeah. the 90s. Which even gets emphasized by there are there is another set of actors which are the yes. kid actors. Yes. And we see like some truly traumatic yes like parental figures and things uh-huh. like doing extreme homophobia against these kids. Yeah, like I won't describe it, yeah. but it's like kind of triggering there's like, you know, violence, you know, yeah. and ab- abusive violence and it's uncomfortable and it the movie feels very willing to stare homophobia in the face, but not immigration in a weird way, I think. Yeah. Um, and I part of why I think that ended up sitting weird for me, too, is that the we don't really see... Mm-hmm. Like, we get, like, them saying, oh, like, they hate us here mm-hmm. because, like, we're Mexican immigrants. Mm-hmm. We don't ever see, like, homophobia that also exists in the United States. Yes. And so homophobia gets, like, offloaded onto Mexico. Yes. As a thing that they, like, they, like, fled Mexico where they were hated for being gay and are now in the U.S. where they're hated for being Mexican. Uh-huh. And that there's, like, not any sort of, like, like, it, like, really compartmentalizes those yes. in a way that then makes me even more uncomfortable with how homophobia gets, like... It is, like, people in their family doing it to them. There's, mm-hmm. like, a face. Like, we see, like, how individuals are, like, per- you know, perpetuating this mm-hmm. in a way that then, like... Like, we don't even really see, like, someone on the street of New York just, mm-hmm. like, saying mean things mm-hmm. because they're Mexican or whatever. Like, there's, yeah. like, maybe, like, one scene that... There's one where they, like, kind of make fun of him because he's a delivery driver that feels right. like it could be slightly right racially charged or something but like not really right it was like and, what you have a pizza for me it was like the, <laughs> right like, <laughs> yeah and um and like the scene where um the the main character like the protagonist I, I can't remember his name right now um he like uh 
the the first scene where he it starts cooking in a restaurant um is just like they doubted me because i was you know just the delivery driver and i was just you know this like faceless mexican immigrant to them but i proved them wrong because i had a bunch of talent yeah um and it's weird because that first cooking scene happens and that first cooking scene is in the united states in like 1995 and then we montage through a bunch of pride parades and stuff into them opening their own restaurant yeah and it is hard to imagine that um a pair of gay mexican immigrants lived through the 2000s (laughs) without any incident yeah you know (laughs) just pride parades as far as the eye can see <laughs> there was there was gonna be a constitutional amendment to ban gay marriage and we yeah. just montage past it <laughs> um, yeah and it's so like it i think part of what sat weird for me is just how it ends up i think like very clearly painting like the mm-hmm. u.s as being better than mexico yes in this way yes that like there are very real reasons why people want to come to the U.S., mm-hmm. and yet I think also, like, that framing could well, use, like, more nuance of, like, like, well, we get mention again of, like, people hate us here, but we don't see that. Yeah. They say it, but we never see it in a way that, like, well, and the feels other, like it would be more real. The other thing that's weird is that, um, I, like, 100%, I agree, and the other flip side to this is that because when you get the you know the people portraying themselves in the more documentary style the movie changes like queerness is not an issue once that changeover happens yeah in large part um and so once you get that changeover and the movie pivots to be more about immigration um you also don't get in the first more fictionalized like first half of the movie you get a lot of gay community in their small town in mexico and you're like look they're going to drag clubs and there's all and and gay bars and like they're they're in community with lots of other queer people like seeing those depictions of like here's like a 90s yes like queer nightlife yes in mexico is yes like something that i mean obviously they had to like stage it but they're still basing it on like the stories that mm-hmm. they probably told mm-hmm. it's like this is like really interesting and i think valuable to see it's not and something the... that i've seen yeah in a movie like we've like i've seen the birdcage but that's about like miami or whatever yeah. <laughs> you know like you you get you I've seen queer nightlife in cinema a lot. Paris is Burning exists. Yeah. Um, you don't get queer nightlife in places that are not the United States a lot of the time. Um, and because the second half of the movie is like, well, we were gay and it was fine, you also don't get the queer nightlife in the U.S. And I think you could do really interesting scenes about maybe this just didn't happen to these people or maybe they didn't want to talk about it or whatever but i would imagine that in the in new york in the 90s there were a lot of gay bars that were uh 
you know, very white and not very okay with Mexican immigrants hanging out yeah. there. You know, <laughs> like, <laughs> I would imagine that they encountered a lot of racism at that time. I don't know, but that would be my guess. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so, it, I mean, it just ended up feeling like mm-hmm. there were, there was more that I think if I was... Uh doing this i would try to take on yeah and part of it 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 is it's just like maybe it's just this is the story that like these guys wanted to tell but it's still um i don't know i i think that was one of the the things the more distance that i've had from it the more i'm just like that was kind of a a weird part about how that movie was constructed yeah um because we <laughs> now remembering the the person who was sitting near us in the theater who was like <laughs> learning that people express a, oppression for the very first time <laughs> just like laughing was... awkwardly at every homophobic scene and yeah, just like being like, like oh my god whenever like anyone would do say anything remotely bad to there's anyone. like there's like a scene of like homophobic physical violence and this guy just like did the most uncomfortable like <laughs> <laughs> Because he's like, oh, I can tell I'm supposed to feel something, but I don't know that homophobia exists, and so I'm just going to kind of, like, make a noise. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was also thinking about, because I was just thinking about him a lot, because he's he, he was an older gentleman, and... I was just thinking about him a lot because I was like, how did you end up at the the gay movie at 10 p.m. on a Friday? Yeah. <laughs> or you just, do you just love movies and you're just like, well, this is the theater near my apartment and I'll just go see whatever they're playing at 10 p.m.? He wasn't there with anyone else. That's the yeah. other thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I could not figure out his deal. He was... <laughs> The other thing that's funny is that when we were talking about this on the walk home yesterday, I was just talking about, like, cinematography and aesthetic shit the whole time, and I wasn't thinking about this at all. And then as soon as we started talking, it was like, no, 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 let me, like, unpick politics here, because it's actually kind (laughs) of, like, not... (laughs) Um, I figured we can talk a little bit about, like... Yeah, totally. Like, this was clearly digital. Yes. Um, I think it looks better than a lot of the digital films that we, like, rag on all the time. My and I feel like like one thing I noticed is that there are some moments where they are doing like what would be more color grading, mm-hmm. but it seems like it seems like they're using it in the way that often, um, like older film you would sometimes even just like dye the film right. with the color right like there's ones where it's just like oh it's just like like I'm thinking of one in particular in the desert where um the like main character is going. And the his boyfriend is like still in Mexico, and then there's the the red like yes. laser dot, yes. and then yes. it like becomes all red yes. in this way where like clearly they're doing like what would be color grading now, mm-hmm. but they're using it in this way that felt a little bit more like old film, although like without it just it, doesn't have the same richness. Still, it, it felt like, the color grading to me felt very like sort of like reflective of emotional states, whereas like. The movies that we complain about um, are often just like 
well, I'll put orange on the right half of the screen and teal on the left half of the screen because this creates yeah. an interesting <laughs> image. <laughs> those and those are contrasting colors, and so it will add dynamism to my scene. <laughs> and, you know... And then I'll the, just do it in every single scene and thus destroy any potential <laughs> dynamism. <laughs> and orange does not convey any sort of, like, thematic resonance or yeah. emotional um, affect or anything. It is just orange and teal. <laughs> or, sometimes teal is the sad color, and sometimes teal is the sky color. <laughs> sometimes I'll do the, the pink and blue, and then mm -hmm. it's bisexual. <laughs> and I will put pink and blue in my film, because then somebody will make a Twitter thread out of it, and we'll sell at least 100 tickets. <laughs> And then they'll be clapping emojis about how this Marvel movie is uh, anti-capitalist or something. <laughs> anyway. Um, um, what the fuck were we talking about? Oh, yeah. But the thing that I was talking to you on the whole walk home that made me feel... I, I want to Google. I'm going to Google something. Um, I'm going to Google how long this movie was. I think it was I typed in 11 minutes. I typed in the Spanish title and um, the f Google autocomplete was uh, Te Volcomigo Película Online, <laughs> which is very funny. So it's 110 minutes. It felt like three hours to me. Yeah. And a huge part of that is that I think every single shot in the film is shot on a handheld. Um. There are no establishing shots. They are all... All the establishing shots are over the shoulders of characters walking and, like, you see them in profile thinking about something. Um, and then you get conversations where it's in close-up, and then when there's an emotional moment, you get extreme close-up. <laughs> and there is such a, like, monotone rhythm to, like, over the shoulder, close-up, extreme close-up every now and then we're gonna pull out and like put the camera on the fucking ground and shoot up at a skyscraper to show you how cool new york is which like yeah, yeah. we know <laughs> yeah um, um it is there is no sort of variation and i'm not like i'm not here to say that i need every movie to be like wowing me with like all sorts of different camera setups in every scene what I am saying is that you cannot shoot an entire movie in handheld and <laughs> and close up because I feel fucking insane. Yeah, <laughs> and um, literally, literally, like so much. I cannot describe to you how much of this movie is like. Oh, every every single time. Okay, every single scene has to have an emotional gut punch. And every emotional gut punch has to be um, delivered with the, like, close-ups so tight that Nicholas Winding Refn would be like, yeah, a little extreme. <laughs> Sergio Leone would be like, all right, you could tone that down. <laughs> you only do it this close at the very end when they're about to shoot each other. <laughs> it's every single, like, twist of the knife emotional moment is delivered in the same way to where at some point none of them land for me. The moment that does land is you get this moment early in the movie, early-ish in the movie, like maybe at the halfway point, 
and then you get it again at the end where the camera is set on a tripod and you get this like very like squared up perpendicular shot of the main character like saying goodbye to his son for the last time Mm -hmm. uh and that really works because there's like framing (laughs) yeah you have like a sense of like the Mm -hmm. space yes you also have like here's the space around them and Mm -hmm. they're close and then like the sun walking away Mm -hmm. for the last time Mm -hmm. um and so like within that shot you can also like get this like emotional thing that is happening as like bodies moving and not like let's mm-hmm. get a close-up on a face of like him looking sad because mm-hmm. he's hugging his son mm-hmm. <laughs> right yeah <laughs> which is how so much of the rest of this is uh-huh. one of the other ones that stuck out to me which i think is one that gets repeated as well is it's at like the house party where they first met and mm-hmm. then i think they show a clip of it at the end oh too, yeah, yeah, yeah yeah where they're standing like in a doorway yes on either sides of the frame and yes. then like reach across to like hold hands yes for like a second it's good um and that's also good because it's just like like you have a sense of like the space of like this mm-hmm. um like you get it's door- like borderline house party like queer space that is existing yes um and then like them like connecting and then it has this like thematic mm-hmm. you know this like whole across the distance for a while and everything right. so um but I feel like those are few and far between. They like uh-huh. had a few good images and they used them and then most of it was just... The other thing that they do, which I thought... like This is like this exact sort of shit that we were talking about last time that usually appeals to me but didn't always land in this movie. Is that there is sort of an element of like... Like there's a scene where a character is getting in a car and leaving from the house where he grew up for the last time. And he looks in the rearview mirror of the car and he sees like the child actor who was playing like his youngest self. And yeah. then he looks behind him and that character is not there. And there's like moments more in the first, more fictionalized half of the film where sort of like memory is intruding upon reality and not like in very clear ways. Like the character lays down on his bed and then you get like a pan and then the child actor is in the shot and his dad's in the shot and they're having this conversation they did when they were kids when he was a kid um like there are moments where like memory is bleeding into reality but kind of i i wish it had more of a distinct look i wish there was like something like the easiest thing you could do is like do those scenes in black and white or something um just something to distinguish it visually to like further sell the sorts of ways that like memory and reality like blend together but are distinct um and it's also weird because that element of the movie kind of drops away during the like more documentary part of the movie but during the documentary part you get so many people being like, oh, I carry you with me. Like, you're in my thoughts all the time. And yeah. <laughs> so you get the people it's saying that, but you don't get the visuals that you had <laughs> earlier in the film. There, there's a part of this, too, where, and it, like, I don't know how this was made. So mm-hmm. maybe some of it was like they started shooting it as a documentary and then realized, like, oh, in order to actually tell this story and to, like, to touch on the themes that are coming mm-hmm. up here, too, that because they're talking when they're telling their story about, like, 
I have these memories of Mexico that are now bleeding into like this dream that I have of being able to return to Mexico. And Mm -hmm. there's like a point at which some of it, I'm not sure what's real and what's not Mm -hmm. like what is actual memories that I have of Mexico and what is like the Mexico that I've constructed because it's been 20 years since I've been there. Mm -hmm. And like, I think about it all the time. Sometimes Mm -hmm. I dream that I'm home, that I'm back in Mexico Mm -hmm. and are those dreams that I'm having when I'm asleep and thinking, Oh, I'm home again. Mm -hmm. Like, mixing with the memory mm-hmm. and so like were they filming that stuff and then going oh there's like something else we could do here let's like yeah really lean into the staging past scenes and like extend mm-hmm. it out into more of like this docudrama mm-hmm. kind of territory so i don't know if that was like the way it was produced and that's kind of how some of this came about but i feel like you could have done interesting scenes too where you have like the people like the actual humans mm-hmm. And then the actors and have, like, scenes where... Yeah. Because those actors were able, like, they were in New York yeah. and they were also in Mexico. So having scenes yeah. where, like, you can have it panning and then there's, like, them as their young selves. Yes. And stuff. Um, where, like... What I'm saying is I want this movie to be only yesterday. <laughs> yeah. Like, those actors are intruding into the, the present as well, mm-hmm. in a way. I mm-hmm. think, like, that would... If I was doing it, I would probably try and get more like mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Um, because I feel like you could like further, like what is interesting and what is most interesting to me about this film mm-hmm. is the way that it's like playing with the line between documentary and fiction and yeah. like how do these things blend and, yeah. um, is any attempt to like, like all attempts to create a documentary are themselves creating like to some mm-hmm. degree a fictionalized story mm-hmm. because even if you do cinema verite, you're still like editing right and right. stuff like you're you know there's always ways that you're doing this so um, um i'm i'm pulling up because <laughs> juo's email was about this subject and so I'll yeah. juo's email um it's funny because i haven't seen any uh christoph kishlowski okay kishlowski <laughs> i've not seen any of his films um and you were talking to me about how he moved from uh yeah. making documentary to making like feature films because um he felt that like in making documentary you're like sort of like intruding on the subject's lives and like you know changing things um i'm just pulling up here of like his documentaries so he started uh i think his first one i guess he was an actor but like so like 66 mm-hmm and then his first feature film was 78, which is a TV drama. Mm-hmm. Um, and, like, really when he started doing it a bunch is, like, when you get to, like... The Decalogue. Like Decalogue and stuff, which is, like, 88, like, 87, I would say. Yeah. It's really the beginning of, like, he's just fully doing this, because what? Yeah, 88 was his last documentary. So that's, like, the point where he is, mm-hmm. like... <sighs> yeah, it basically had the sense of, like, what is most interesting about... Mm-hmm. Um, documentary like what are the most interesting stories to tell when you're really getting to the heart of it when you're like really telling what it what is like how am I getting to the truth of this person and of what's happening like that involves a level of um, like almost not just intrusion but of like almost like violation of like that person's privacy and that person's like mm-hmm. ability to have ownership over their own story in a way that he like 
started becoming very uncomfortable with mm -hmm. as a documentary maker. And so he decided to just stop doing it and tell the stories that he kept, he kept wanting to tell with documentaries, but doing it as fiction. Mm -hmm. um, and then he can kind of yeah. get deeper into these stories because now you're like, it's right. fiction and you're, you're not like messing with anybody's life. Yeah. Um, um, which is like, as someone who did a lot of digitizing, especially documentary footage was like a thing that we had to talk about. Like there's a tape that I digitized mm -hmm. that so at media burn, like a lot of the stuff that we digitize, you can just watch for free on the website. Mm -hmm. And so we did digitize it. It exists. If someone was really interested in doing a project about the Cabrini or like a, a film or something about the Cabrini green project, they might be able to access this footage that was shot. But if you're not familiar with Cabrini, uh, Cabrini green, it was like this kind of experiment in chicago for basically like a giant like a city block is just one giant building mm -hmm. and it's just full of apartments mm -hmm. um and it failed for a lot of ways or mm -hmm. for a lot of reasons but part of it was that it was like it was specifically meant for like low income mm -hmm. um and so then there just like wasn't the actual support that mm -hmm. you would actually need for something like this and then it became this like nightmare because they were trying to fix it with policing and then how do you police when it's like going around in hallways right it just like got even worse and so uh, what then happens is it's like okay cabrini green has become this problem because we haven't been like mm -hmm. properly investing in it or taking care of poor people in any way mm -hmm. and so what we're going to do is we're going to tear it down and we're just going to like build mixed income housing mm -hmm. that's really going to lean towards like richer white people moving in and, mm -hmm. and gentrifying this space um and so one of the tapes that i digitized was Literally a woman getting evicted because they're about to tear down Cabrini Green. Mm -hmm. And she's just having the worst day of her life because she's just like a single mom mm -hmm. who is like working multiple jobs to try and make ends meet and is now getting kicked out of her apartment and doesn't know where she's going to be living. And so she's just like being terrible mm -hmm. because it's the worst day of her life. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's like we can't we can't put this up for people to see. Mm -hmm. Like... <laughs> Yeah, we're we're not going to put like this, this woman's worst day of her life on the internet. Yeah, <laughs> um, but sometimes like, what's the heart of the story mm -hmm. might involve that. But then it's like, what's the ethics of this? Right, right. Um, um, so yeah, this this is all of me, my way of explaining Kieślowski and why he went to fiction. And the thing <laughs> that I just brought up was that it's very funny because I didn't know any of this about Kieślowski. Um, I think of all these conversations around. Werner Herzog thinks about a lot of the same things and has decided, and that's why it's fucking sick to make documentaries, <laughs> because they're unethical as shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, all just to say, like, I feel like there are a lot of people in this space who sort of think about these things, and I think this movie is thinking about these things, and I think it just doesn't come up with, like, very interesting answers just from like a filmmaking perspective of like i feel like the the nonfiction and the fiction could blend together more i think like what the movie even is could be signposted better like um yeah i yeah. I, I anyway this is what i meant by like i had a lot to say about this movie I also mostly, like, had a good time 
at the movie theater. Like, granted, this is like the first movie I've seen in theater since Rise of Skywalker, so it had definitely to... better than Rise of Skywalker. <laughs> Kicks the shit out of Rise of Skywalker. Um, the Last Jedi made me actually care about Star Wars again, and then <laughs> Rise of Skywalker made me not again. It's so bad. Um, but yeah, like I did like the movie. I did. I did have a generally positive impression of the movie. It's just also. It's like one of those things that in talking about it in and I think it I think it is a movie that's like I want you to really think about this but in thinking about it like my opinion kind of lowers where it's in the moment I was like oh I'm just you know hanging out in a movie and it'll be done in two hours and it's yeah. you know it's enjoyable and the, uh, the one thing I will say because I went into this with this expectation of like oh it's about like mm-hmm. these gay guys in Mexico coming to the US mm-hmm. and I was going into it really expecting, like, most movie, like, most quote-unquote gay or, like, queer movies right now are just coming out stories. It's just the same fucking story over and over again, mm-hmm. where it's like, oh, you're a kid and you're coming out of mm-hmm. the closet, and then it ends with you come out of the closet. Yeah. And this extremely wasn't that in a way that yes. was, like, especially in the beginning, I was like, oh, this is, like, actually turning out to be, like, a, an interesting, like, gay love story. Like, gay yes. romance that's, like going far beyond just the like yes oh so in many, the closet coming out so many gay movies quote unquote are i think either made for gay teens or cis people like cis hats you know uh-huh. and this did feel to me like a gay movie that is made like to actually speak to like what is life like you know and a character, a character like comes out in this movie, but the movie feels like what is life like after coming out, you know? Yeah. Um, and is not, not terribly concerned with the moment of, um, with that moment of crisis in a queer person's yeah. life. Yeah. And know? also, the the way that the coming out happens here also felt more real to me than a lot of like quote unquote gay movies mm-hmm. because he's like out in certain circles yes and it's specifically like people in his life that he's not out to yes which is um, like like he's maintaining the illusion of the closet like he he yes. is he is actively trying to pass in a way that's very different than the like often adolescent like you haven't basically told anyone other yes. than like maybe your best friend or something yes whereas this, is, this is like is... he's like going to gay nightclub he like hang he hangs out with his dyke friend and they go mm-hmm. to gay nightclubs Mm-hmm. And he's like hooking up with dudes, and he meets this guy, and it gets serious enough that it like finally intrudes on him trying to maintain this illusion of straightness so he can continue to yes. see his son, which is like, yeah, it just feels more true to like I realized that I was like trans in between like my third and fourth years of undergrad, and so like I was out to friends online, and then I was sent an email to my parents uh because god forbid i like talk to them i say that like i made the wrong choice i made the right choice emailing (laughs) them that was the right choice um and then like spent the last year of college like out to a couple people on campus but then not to the people i was hanging out with every day and then you know like the so many queer movies treat the closet as like and then you're out, and it's over, you know? Yeah. Um, and 
like the closet is sort of a like ongoing you know part of anybody's life i feel like yeah i think i was thinking of when i was speaking and i i think it i wonder if it's part of why we're getting this like weird divide between um like mexico and the u.s is i think something that this film is also trying to set up is like when he was in mexico the thing that like was getting in the way of him being able to be close to his son was the homophobia Mm -hmm. um and specifically once he's like Mm. discovered then his wife is like oh i'm not gonna let you like see your son anymore and that's part of why he comes to the u.s yeah and then when it's in the u.s the thing that's stopping him from seeing his son is the immigration thing right and i wonder if some of it is a symptom of like this person's life probably was i'm facing this homophobia Uh uh-huh like i you know my wife finds my ex-wife finds out Mm -hmm. i've been saying wife but ex-wife yeah um and like because i feel like i'm not gonna be able to see my son anyways i'm finally taking this like jump Mm -hmm. and then as a thing that like often happens in this doesn't always happen but i think a lot of queer people have the story of like I don't think either of our parents are still, like, super great, but mm-hmm. also there's a certain point at which, like, they might go from not talking to you at all to they yeah. talk to you some. Yeah, like, um, or, like, sort of what I have with my parents is, like, well, we just won't talk about that. We can talk about anything yeah. else but that, and I feel like a lot of queer people end up in that space where, like, well, I'm not going to convince you to stop being gay, and so we'll just, you know... I'll feel whatever I feel about it, and we'll just talk about, you know, yeah. everything else that's going on in our lives besides this. You and know? so, like, we never get the... We never get, like, the homophobia happening mm-hmm. in society, and that's, like, being expressed by his ex-wife and his mother, and being like, you can't see your son anymore mm-hmm. because you're gay. Mm-hmm. That never gets resolved in a way that it probably was to some degree, where it's like, why is it that he's now having video calls with his son mm-hmm. um because somebody's suggesting something has changed within that relationship and maybe it's just that the son is old enough now that he's yes. able to make that choice and wants to connect with his dad but i think he does or... talk to his mom on the phone once or twice yeah. or at least at the very least his husband does yeah talk to his mom on the phone but yeah yeah and so there's like there's some suggestion that there was like progress made there but again we don't see it because the i think Mm -hmm. the movie wants to set up like the things that are dividing him from being able to see his son as like this like er relationship that permeates and Um, that might be like that might be a result of like you know you're talking to this person and he feels like this division between me and my son is like the narrative that has like dominated my life it is like when i think of the narrative thread that ties my whole life together it is not either homophobia or immigration it is about how those two things have at different times impacted my relationship with my son that and that may be like if you're talking to that person and you're making that movie then you decide to kind of like follow whatever narrative he provides you because that's gonna you know yeah probably make for a movie he's happier with which i think is on some level important (laughs) you know i think Um, if you're going to like tell the world hey this guy who owns this restaurant in new york city is an undocumented immigrant (laughs) you should probably at least make a movie he's happy with (laughs) yeah 
yeah hopefully he, he was fine from hopefully that didn't blow made. up his spot um <laughs> yeah um but i feel like we can do joe's yeah email and maybe wrap up this uh short little discussion of the movie before we get to the movie that's this is a podcast <laughs> that's officially about <laughs> um uh, Joe says, what's your favorite documentary that works as a comedy movie for you? And what is your favorite instance of documentaries using forgery or lies? In parentheses, he says, besides F for fake. I'll just note that um, I've never seen F for fake. And when I said that to you, you're like, why have you not seen any Orson Welles? <laughs> for someone who has the hots for Orson Welles, you've not seen a lot of Orson Welles. Citizen Kane is like one of my favorite movies. And I've listened to a handful of his Shakespeare radio adaptations. And that's it. <laughs> yeah. And, and then, and then, watched and the then we watched man. The Third Man a couple weeks ago. Okay. Um, oh, and I've seen The Trial, which is a movie he directed but is not in. So, which, <laughs> whoever was making the casting call there. Um, you should always be putting Orson Welles in movies. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if you can put Orson Welles in a movie, you should be putting Orson Welles in a movie. <laughs> if that option is at all available to you. Um, sometimes that does lead you to choices like casting Orson Welles as Othello, but you know. <laughs> So anyway, Joe says, "What is your favorite documentary that works as a comedy movie?" I for just you? read this. I know, but I'm I'm actually I'm bringing up the question again so that people <laughs> listening will be able to hear our answers. Um, I was thinking about this, and I think mine is Indie Game the movie. Um, yeah, <laughs> which is not a good documentary. No, I would not say it's my favorite documentary. No. But favorite documentary that works as a comedy? Yes, <laughs> um, because. Especially that works as a comedy. Like, there are some documentaries that are comedic, but especially the the phrasing of this question made me think of, like, what's a documentary that, like, my enjoyment of it comes from seeing it as, like, reading it comedically. Mm-hmm. Even though that's not necessarily the intention. And then it's definitely Indie Game the movie. Because the man peed in a jug. <laughs> <laughs> so, the... <laughs> The thing about Indie Game the Movie is that Indie Game the Movie is really funny. I don't think that I don't, I don't think that the people I think the people making the movie had an inkling that there were some funny bits. Yeah. But it's a really funny movie. And it only gets funnier when you know that like Jonathan Blow ends up being the piss bottle guy. <laughs> that Phil Fish ended up having Maybe the greatest meltdown in Twitter history and canceled a game because of it. <laughs> um, and Edmund McMillan is still making Binding of Isaac. <laughs> he, can- <laughs> he cannot stop making Binding of Isaac. People have asked him to stop making Binding of Isaac and he won't do it. <laughs> and so the movie only gets funnier as, like, the I think Indie Game the movie tries to provide a narrative like a a beginning middle and end um that do not uh did not happen in real life because these people only became funnier and funnier as public figures after this movie (laughs) yeah definitely um the the god those scenes with 
I mean, I'm sure people have seen them on Twitter, but if not, like, look for them at those scenes with John Blow are just fucking <laughs> incredible. Um, when you also, because we were talking about this earlier, when you said indie game of the movie, the other one that came to mind was um, King of Kong. Yeah. Which I think answers both of Shua's questions, because that documentary is fake as shit. <laughs> yeah. That movie um, is so fucking fake. And not in the, like... <laughs> Not in the sort of Herzog way of like, I'm going to intentionally like agitate the actors and the scenes to like, you know, draw, create the best like documentary. It's just like, it, it's just like lying to you. It's just, li- it's just telling you straight up and down lies. And also everybody in that movie has gotten like infinitely sadder, sadder since then. Yeah. <laughs> Just Um, everybody is like a constant train wreck every time they're in headlines. The other one, I don't know if this entirely fits with like forgery and lies, um, but for that question, one that I ended up thinking of was Waltz with Bashir, which it's been a long time since I've watched this movie. My, My understanding of like the colonial project against the Palestinians has grown since I've first Mm. seen it. Um, but I think like the film as it exists is still fairly critical to some degree. I mean, it it is about like a filmmaker who was an IDF soldier and basically has no memories of this day when he was a soldier in an area where a massacre, a massacre, massacre happened. Mm -hmm. I don't know why I can't say that word right now. Um, and is basically trying to like figure out the truth of like what what was his involvement and what's his level of guilt. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure if I watch it now, I would, I would probably more be more critical of it than I was at the time. But I still think it is interesting as a another film that's like playing with the space between what's reality, like what are memories that people have. How can I like. How can I try and reach some truth when I don't even remember what happened and I don't know why I don't remember what happened? Mm-hmm. Um, and he gets like some the grave answer of his involvement by the end. but um, And so part of it too is that it's an animated documentary to like further emphasize the like space that's happening between reality and like the construction of reality that exists um, in a way that I just thought was really interesting. Mm-hmm. But again, like caveats, mm-hmm. I watched it like um, many years ago. If you were, in, I'm trying to do the math. I was an undergrad. You were an undergrad, which was ten years ago for you. No, eleven. Eleven, because it was three years ago for me. <laughs> um. um, and probably this would have been. It probably would have been like 12 or 13 years ago. Okay. So I don't remember it very well. Yeah. And yeah. The, I make no like statements of the how mm-hmm. great this movie is beyond mm-hmm. at the time I thought it was interesting and I, mm-hmm. I would want to watch it again. The You saying that reminded me of um, Man Bites Dog, which oh, is... Yeah. I don't know if I would like that movie as much now as I did then. But I did really, for people who are not familiar with Man Bites Dog, it is like, it is a like 100% fictional movie. Like, it is fake. It is yeah. all fake. But um, the sort of the premise is that it is a, uh, quote-unquote, like, French documentary mo- crew um, 
Belgian, actually. I'm reading over your shoulder here. Yeah. Um, it's a mockumentary. Duh, that's the word I'm looking for. Um, it is a mo- like a documentary crew, quote-unquote, following yeah. around a serial killer um, and just, like, hanging out. Um, and I don't, like, we wouldn't want to talk about Spinal Tap to answer this question, you know. Um, yeah. But I, I like Man Bites Dog because I think... In a weird way, that movie wraps around to actually kind of being real, not about serial killers in France or whatever, but about, like, it comes out in, I think, 1993, 1992, and is, like, clearly a bunch of, like, French teenagers just like, oh, I ha- hey, I had a funny idea, let's make this, and they're just kind of <laughs> fucking around. <laughs> Like, it's kind of just 90 minutes of, like, teens fucking around with this edgelord idea that they had. Yeah. <laughs> and I think, <laughs> I think it is a movie that much like, because it's the same time as, like, Clerks and Slacker and Reservoir Dogs. And I think it, like, gets to the reality of what it is like to be a French teen with, like, a Super 16 camera that's just kind of fucking around. <laughs> yeah. Um, that is the first Criterion, uh, DVD I ever bought. Wow. Um. I don't know my first Criterion DVD. I've only, I've only bought, like, four or five ever. I've never been a big collector of, like, uh, physical media, so. I feel like it was probably Kurosawa for me. Probably. That would make sense. That would make sense. Um, I know my first Criterion Blu-ray. What was your first Criterion Blu-ray? Was, uh, The Third Man. I don't know that I've ever owned a Criterion Blu-ray. I have The Third Man, um, Pale Flower, two mm. black and white movies, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Tokyo Drifter, and those might be the three that I have. Um, I don't buy a lot of Blu-rays anymore. I kind of stopped watching movies and thought that I hated movies for many years. So. I thought that I hated movies for three years, I think, so yeah. I think mine was longer than that, but yeah. yeah. Um, turns out movies are great. You just gotta... Movies are great. <laughs> you just have to uh, watch them with someone who, um... Enjoys... Pops off when, uh... <laughs> like, Orson Welles appears in a, in a doorway. <laughs> um, to sing into our next movie, uh... Red Peony Gambler 3, Hanafuda Match. There was a scene where... There's a shot, not a scene, there's a shot... Where the main character, like, her head pops into a window, and the window is tinted green. <laughs> and I was like, yo, because it's just a really yeah. good shot of her in a green. And then she, like, takes a step forward, and in the second pane of the window, it's all tinted blue, and so she's in a different... And then we both were like, yo! <laughs> <laughs> and that's that's movies. Yeah, that's movies. It turns... <laughs> turns out that movies are great you just have to find somebody in your life who's gonna shout yo when somebody walked from a green pane in a window to a blue pane in a window um i brought up ina's email because it did tie into what we were saying but i don't know if we want to do this email and then do uh, sure, I mean, match. We, we could do this slightly out of order and yeah. do the criterion one first and then and then maybe number three let's, and then we can do number one or do you want to say number do, three for the very end I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to, um, Quentin Tarantino this. We'll answer okay. question two, then question three, and then loop back to question one to tie into Hanafuda match. Okay. So, um, hey, stair climbers. <laughs> uh, Ina, first time, long time. Um, 
make too many podcasts, uh, blah, 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 blah. Question two. Hey, the big honkin' uh, Criterion slash Arrow sales are happening. Do you two have any big wrecks? I do, and I wrote down... I went through Barnes Noble's catalog, and I wrote down a list of five... Um, and it was just the first five that really caught my eye as like I stuff don't know that which I. Of these it, is. it is this one. Thank you. Um, it's just the first five that caught my eye because I felt like I could do this forever, and I tried not to pick the most obvious things. Like, yes, you should get a fucking Blu-ray of Videodrome. It's a great movie. You don't yeah. need me to tell you that everybody's watched Videodrome. I think I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> get some Kurosawa Blu-rays. Yeah, though. get some Kurosawa. Like. Most of them are going to be good. So, okay. First one I wrote down here, um, Badlands. It is the first Terrence Malick film. It is um, Sissy Spacek and Martin Sheen just driving around being hooligans. Um, yeah. And it's just one of the best movies that's ever been made. I don't know. It's just great. <laughs> it's it's a very ornate stairwells movie. There's probably not a single stair in that movie, but um, it's a very us movie because it is just young people driving around smoking cigarettes and like looking out at the vastness of wilderness of the you know badlands of wyoming and being like wow and then cut to the next scene <laughs> there's an extended sequence of a guy painting a billboard <laughs> um second thing i wrote down um uh there's a big bruce lee box set that has just like the five bruce lee movies you want um Way of the Dragon, Fist of Fury, um, oh, what is it? it? Way of the Dragon, Fist of Fury, The Big Boss, Enter the Dragon, and Game of Death. Um, also, my, I think it maybe had Game of Death too. It has both versions of um, Enter the Dragon, the original theatrical and the extended um, home, home video one. Um, if you haven't seen bruce lee movies he's maybe like the greatest actor of all time (laughs) um i don't know it also if you haven't seen bruce lee movies and you don't know where to start uh bruce lee is maybe the only martial arts actor ever where the american movie is his best one enter the dragon is i think the best movie that he did after that i would say fist of fury um and the big boss are really good some people really like Game of Death because it's a weird movie. I don't, but I get why people like Game of yeah. Death. And a lot of people will tell you to watch Way of the Dragon because that's the one with Chuck Norris in it. I think that movie's pretty mid. And then the Chuck Norris scene is kind of overrated. And if it was literally any other actor in that scene, Way of the Dragon would not be like remembered as one of his classics. The actual good thing about the Chuck Norris scene is that they're fighting in, like, the Colosseum at Rome, I think, if I remember right. <laughs> That's the actual cool thing in that scene. Um, but yeah, Fist of Fury and the Big Boss are, like, the two greatest, like... Fist of Fury, Big Boss, and Enter the Dragon are, like, the three greatest martial arts movies ever, you know? Like, I, I fucking love that shit. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I, I have read... I have watched deeply on a couple of martial arts actors i have not like watched widely i haven't seen like a ton of donnie yen or jet lee or like i know people really like the street fighter movies and not street fighter the video game franchise but street fighter the 70s hong kong like (laughs) 
<laughs> People really like those like 70s Street Fighter movies. Anyway. Um, quickly going to go through. I've still got three more movies. I went long on Bruce Lee. Um, the Devil's Backbone is a Guillermo del Toro movie. It is um, one of his... It is, I think, less famous than Pan's Labyrinth or Shape of Water, but I think it is his best one. Um, Blowout, because, um, one, it's a great movie. Two, um, it's by Brian De Palma, and at some point, maybe in the near future, I'm going to bring Brian De Palma, like a Brian De Palma movie on. But if I bring a Brian De Palma movie, it's going to be one of the depraved movies for sickos and perverts. (laughs) Because, um, I mean, that that's us. Yeah. Um, Blowout is, like, him still making a depraved movies for, for sickos, but trying to make it more palatable so that, like, it's a bigger hit. And I think he mostly does it really well. Um, it's not half as... It's not Sisters. It's not, like, it's just a fucking disgusting movie. I love the Sisters so much. Last one, Night of the Hunter. Uh, there's a repertory screenings. If you don't know Night of the Hunter, you should go listen to that episode. It, Night of the Hunter is just the best movie ever. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> um, I didn't like go through the list because there's, yeah. there's a lot of criterion I could recommend. Um, and honestly, a lot of it is like... I don't know if I'd just be like, go buy a random like Blu-ray or DVD, mm-hmm. but I, I think like... Like, part of me is, like, to what degree has have you watched a bunch of movies? Because mm-hmm. I think at a certain point you might start getting a sense of, like, this is what I'm interested in. Mm-hmm. And then, like, even if it's something that you haven't really heard of before, you might be able to look at it and go, like, oh, okay, like, I'm interested in Japanese horror and this looks like a right. weird, interesting Japanese horror film. Right. I'm just going to get it. Yeah. Because most, not all, mm-hmm. but I would say most Criterion movies are going to mm-hmm. be, like, at least interesting. Yeah. Um, but I, I would say like big wrecks. I mean, one of them, so it's kind of funny cause we're going to have loop around to number one, which is about Yakuza movies, but like pale flower and Tokyo drifter are both just fucking incredible movies. They really are. Um, you, like, should, I, you should get Tokyo drifter. Like if you, you should get Tokyo yeah. drifter. <laughs> yeah. Tokyo drifter is what I love about Tokyo drifter is that Tokyo drifter is a movie that on one hand can be extremely fun to just sit down and like really watch because mm. it's just beautiful and like mm-hmm. really entertaining. It is also a movie you could just throw on in the background at like a party. Yeah. And it's just going to look nice. Yeah. It's just going to make your party <laughs> cool. <laughs> People don't have to watch it. It's just, it's just going to be cool. Yeah. Um, like it's just, it's the perfect movie. Yeah. <laughs> um, it is purely aesthetics. It is literally like, Anytime anyone talks about Tokyo Drifter and tries to talk about the plot or whatever. <laughs> this is actually Ollie. Um, oh. Hi, Ollie. Anytime someone talks about Tokyo Drifter and tries to talk about a plot, I'm just like, you don't understand what the fuck Tokyo Drifter is. Like, <laughs> well, like Which we'll get to when we talk about Red Peony Gambler, but it's just like... The, the amazing thing about um, Seijun Suzuki making that movie is that he realizes... That people go to the movies to have a good time. They don't go to movies to see famous people. They don't go to movies to, like... Um, Sometimes you have a good time because you're seeing a famous person. Yes. But you 
want to have a good time. Yes. And sometimes seeing the famous person is just the way that you have the good time. Yeah. People don't go to movies for famous people. People don't go to movies to feel sad. I mean, maybe you enjoy being sad and you go to a sad yeah. movie. But <laughs> Seijun Suzuki is like, I'm just going to go make the most good time movie ever. And he fucking nailed it. Yeah. <laughs> Just people don't care about plots. People don't care about characters. People about ha- care about having a good time. <laughs> um, so yeah, that like Tokyo Drifter, I think, is my biggest one. Mm-hmm. Like, I will often just it's recommend the best movie people, ever. You should just watch Tokyo Drifter. I called six movies yeah. the best movie ever. <laughs> um, <laughs> then, like, I want to like call out a couple Kurosawa ones because I mm-hmm. love Kurosawa a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I like. Rashomon is an interesting movie, but I don't think I'd actually call it out as, like, this is one to, like, get if you're, like, just trying mm-hmm. to get into Kurosawa. Mm-hmm. Um, even though it was, like, the West's introduction to Kurosawa. Um, I would say especially if you're going for, like, if you want something that's, like, modern, like, not the Jidaigeki, not the, like, the period stuff, but, like, modern Japan. Um, I think my two big wrecks would be Stray Dog, mm-hmm. which is just a, incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, film and it's one of his earliest ones but really good um, and then Ikiru is really mm-hmm. good um, and then if you want something that's like a period one um, Seven Samurai is just yeah it's a classic for a reason yeah um, I'm trying to think if there's like another like part of it is just like just Seven Samurai Yojimbo is really fun Yojimbo I feel like um, a lot of people in the west know about it because it's it's like a maybe other than Seven Samurai, it's maybe, like, the most influential on, like, you, blah, 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 filmmakers in the U.S. Like, I think it just, like, hit a lot of people in a very specific yeah. way. And also, like, getting remade as Fistful of Dollars. Like, I first saw... Yojimbo was the first uh, Kurosawa I saw, and it's because I was getting into movies and somebody told me to watch Fistful of Dollars. And I was like, cool. And I loved that movie. Okay. And then somebody else told me, oh, you love that movie? Well, you should go watch, like, the original. And, yeah. And, like, um, so I think Yojimbo has, like, this huge impact to where sometimes when I'm talking about Kurosawa, I don't even talk about it because it's just like, oh, yeah, everybody knows that movie. But if you haven't seen it, like, maybe my best, maybe my favorite, like, Toshiro Mifune performance, uh, which is not saying nothing. Like, he's... <laughs> Yeah, he's the best actor ever. Um, he's incredible. <laughs> uh, yeah, and like Yojimbo is like, I mean, I'm I'm sure this story has been done before, but like when people are doing a story now where mm-hmm. it is like someone rolls into town and turns the like fighting factions against each other so that he doesn't have to fight them, mm-hmm. they're just doing Yojimbo at this yeah. point. Like that's Yojimbo. Yeah, there there are summons in Final Fantasy games named after this movie. <laughs> I just, it it cannot be overstated how great a line, like, you know, we'll need three coffins and make it four. (laughs) It's good. Yeah, it's a fucking good movie. Um, And then, I'm I'm doing so much of this more on the fly. I think I would say, like, if you want, like, because I've just done a bunch of Japanese movies, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, The Third Man, though, is... yeah. Third Man. An incredible movie. Um, it's definitely my favorite, uh, like, film noir. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very gay. Mm-hmm. 
Very just gay. incredibly gay. We're gonna do it at some point. So we're, yeah, we're going yeah, to. Yeah, it's probably like one year. Yeah. Um, I feel like the like when we hit one year with this podcast, we're gonna do Sonatina and Third Man back to back. And I have, we just have to remember which order we watch those in in real life because I think it's more fun if we do it that way. I think we we did Sonatina and then we did the Third Man. I think you're right. Um, because we almost started this podcast with the third man and then the next week we started right. the podcast. And I was like, we can't, we can't start with 17, eight. We've told the story before. Anyway. Yeah. Um, um, I was going to say one last thing. Um, also you should check out my own private Idaho. It's a little, uh, gay movie. <laughs> starring Bill and Ted. <laughs> starring Bill and Ted. This is just a joke about a misunderstanding I had on Twitter today. <laughs> um... Question three. What the hell is Nia's deal? Question one. (laughs) (laughs) What are your favorite Yakuza movies that aren't the big famous ones like Battles Without, uh, Stray Dog, Sonatine, Tokyo Drifter? Uh, Will Hana be? I just named a different (laughs) movie by the same director. (laughs) Um, Um, What's interesting, so like... High and Low, Branded to Kill. (laughs) Yeah. So part of like this list here is i was thinking about it because some of this is like some of this list i feel like almost exists because i talk about these fucking movies all the time (laughs) like these ones in particular yes and it's especially interesting to me because for a lot of people going to like people would do hanabi instead of sonatine Mm -hmm. there's a reason why hanabi is like easily accessible for Mm -hmm. the most part and sonatine is like harder to find Mm -hmm. um even though i think Sonatini is a better film, personally. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just like it's my favorite film, so mm-hmm. like, obviously I think that. Um, but so I was thinking about this, and I was like, okay, I want to frame this around, especially in contrast to what we just talked about with Criterion sale. Of like, if it's something that would be like Criterion, I'm not going to talk about it mm-hmm. as one of these because that's like big enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and then some of these other ones are just like. So part of it is I'm just picking a bunch of Yakuza movies right now, and a mm-hmm. bunch of them are my favorite ones. Like, part of it is, like, what what are some of my favorite ones that aren't these? Mm-hmm. And it's like... Well, listen to I'm, the yeah, next I'm, two <laughs> months of Ornate Stairwells. And... Not to be a little <laughs> shit about it, but... <laughs> um, so, like, one of them is, like, I really like Red Peony Gambler. Mm-hmm. It's a really fun movie. It's really I, good. I, like, for me, if I'm thinking about the formula of Yakuza mm-hmm. movies... Um, like, I've watched a lot of stuff that's just, like, within this formula. And this is one where I'm, like, I picked this for a reason, which is that if you want to just see what is the formula of, like, a Ninkyo, Ega-style mm-hmm. Yakuza movie, just, like, watch Red Peony Gambler, mm-hmm. and you'll kind of get a sense of what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think it's also interesting because you can watch Red Peony Gambler 3, Hanafuda match, and then you can go and watch Tokyo Drifter, and you can see how Tokyo Drifter is using the formula. Yes. It is, like, doing something beyond just, mm-hmm. like, we're telling this, like, stock story. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, like, but Red Peony Gambler 3 is, I think, more interested in still setting up, like, interesting shots mm-hmm. in this way that 
some of the other stuff is like very clearly just like this is just b-movie genre mm-hmm. like they're just doing these scenes and mm. they're setting it and we get some of it here yeah like red peony gambler 3 has lots where it's like okay we set the camera down and we clearly just shot like four different scenes that take place at four different parts of the movie right and we just like had people change clothes maybe yeah and like shifted something around on a right. desk to make it look like it was yeah a new scene <laughs> and we like shot it all in the same day yeah because that's what a lot of these movies are yeah <laughs> um this i remember um when i was a teen i had um sydney lumet's um book uh like sydney lumet the director uh wrote a book about like movie making and i remember him talking about this as like you know you would storyboard the movie or you know however you would like to plan it and you would say to your you'd get on set one day and you'd be like okay well you know we're gonna shoot all the shots that are up against this wall so that like, you know, we only have to adjust the lighting a little bit today. Um, and then next time we'll come in and we'll do the next wall. And he picked this up doing TV where you had these really tight production schedules. And then his first, um, feature film was, um, 12 angry men where this method totally came back to bite him in the ass because the whole movie is in one room. And so he would, he shot like all the movie four times, basically. Yeah. (laughs) And would have to remember like, okay, we did this take against this wall like three weeks ago. And let me go watch the dailies from that day to remind myself like this actor was here. So this actor who's sitting on the other side of the table in this scene has to be like at the same sort of like emotional like <laughs> high point. <laughs> anyway, weird, weird tangent. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, I realized that I just started talking about red peony gambler three and mm-hmm. I was going to men- like mention a few other movies um so one is if you like really want to go to like what's what's really old Mm -hmm. which i kind of chose not to just because i i don't think we'd have as much fun watching this Mm -hmm. for the podcast but if someone's like i want to go back in time to like what's the origins of this genre in film because the origins actually go back to like theater and folktale um but if you want to see like so 1931 film jirokichi the rat Mm-hmm. Um, it's a pretty good one mm-hmm. if you're like looking for like what's a, a really old like early cinema yakuza film um, that's like the start of the genre um, and like developing this formula um, the thing is I've watched a lot of yakuza movies and so some of like they blend together mm-hmm. at a certain point <laughs> and so mm-hmm. I'm trying to remember I've been like googling while you've been talking mm-hmm. apologies <laughs> I, I um, won't hold it against you. I do it every time that uh, we're not in the same room recording. Yeah. So, I believe... I forget if it... I don't think it's that one. I think it is... So, it's Yakuza, which is... So, Yakuza is actually a losing hand in mm-hmm. a like, gambling card game. Um, and so, it's the numbers 8, 9, and 3, which add up to 20, which would then be 0 in the rules of the game. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, it's often stylized as 8, 9, 3, Garantai. Mm. Um, but Yakuza Garantai, I think this is the one that, um, in some ways, it's like fairly straight formula, but it's starting to complicate it a little bit. And mm-hmm. what it's really venturing into is looking at like 
what are the racial dynamics that were occurring in Japan, especially post-war where there's like starting to be like mixed race people mm-hmm. in Japan. Um, and like the way that even within the system of the Yakuza, they were like a lower class, mm-hmm. um, even within the system where like, you know, Yakuza, the joke of it is that they're all losers. They've mm-hmm. all been dealt a losing hand in life. And mm-hmm. so then what does it mean to like even be within that hierarchy and then facing like the racism and everything? Um, I believe that was, again, I could be completely off because these blend together so much. Yeah. And at a certain point you're like, yeah, Yakuza Garantai, like that could be any fucking movie. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Was that the one that was really interesting? I don't know. Um, and the other, I I know I've talked about them before, but, um, Dead or Alive 1 and then Dead or Alive (laughs) 2 Birds, especially Dead or Alive 2 Birds, um, I would really say is like a fantastic yakuza movie to me um it's always weird because i feel like seeing one like enhances two and yet i don't find one as interesting and yet dead or alive one is the one that like gets held up i think more often as like critiquing the genre in some way Mm -hmm. but and i think like you need him to do that critique of the genre before he then does birds like dead or alive two birds Mm -hmm. um which is just a great fucking movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's also, like, building on the fact that he kind of just, like, gave the middle finger to the entire genre first mm-hmm. before he does it. Okay. <laughs> so, um, but that's, like, also on the list of stuff that mm-hmm. I've brought up. The other big one, which I know we're going to see soon, and I'm going to, like, do, I'm going to say here, it's incredibly hard to find. Um, I am going to, like, try and get a copy. I found it streaming on Facebook, so I'm going to try and, like, I was worried that this movie that we were watching today was the one that you'd found streaming on Facebook. No. This, this movie, Hanafuda Match, you can get on archive.org, just so everybody knows. Yeah. Um, um, Yahoo Anime Rules. Don't fucking snitch. Yeah. <laughs> Don't also snitch about this, like, J- Japan movies online streaming on Facebook. <laughs> but, um, yeah, the so the other movie is Hibari no Mori no Ishimatsu, which I know I've talked about. Is It's just, like, an incredibly gay movie. Um and it's extremely obscure that's why like it isn't a big famous one Mm -hmm. but it is to me Mm -hmm. it's like one of the most important yakuza movies to me because they literally have the like homoerotic relationship of the two men in this movie where Mm -hmm. one of them is played by a drag king and one of them is played by a drag queen Mm -hmm. (laughs) so like well and like and they sing a duet so this (laughs) this podcast exists because like Battles Without is a very homoerotic movie that um, doesn't. So, uh, um, Battles Without One is a very homoerotic movie that can't ever like acknowledge it. Yeah. I think, I think probably, I think probably people making it knew. Like, I think people probably making it probably were like. Oh, there's, like, some gay shit in this movie. Yeah. Like, I don't know how you make a movie where two men cut each other's arms and drink each other's blood and then spend the rest of the movie gazing at each other through barriers that have been, like, put in their way so that they can, like, no longer connect. Yes. I I think people (laughs) were cognizant of this, but I don't think that, like, it's what the movie is about unless you're, you know, two gays in 2021 being like, ah, look... (laughs) They're fucking. <laughs> um, oh, they um, fucking. <laughs> um, 
But like, I, I, I would be really interested to see a movie that can just out and out address that. You know? Yeah. Um. um and yeah. Even if you have to do like Rosa Versailles shenanigans to get there. <laughs> yeah. So I, I'm really, I'm like hoping that I can get it where we can both watch it because I know, like, you don't have a Facebook account. No. Um, I'm not gonna get one. Yeah. So, but Hibari no Mori no Ishimatsu is just. Incredible um, movie. Um, I feel like you could do a modern Yakuza movie that would like further yes. touch on like what's the homoeroticism here. Mm-hmm. But when you make a movie where you have the tension of the two like blood brothers, mm-hmm. and you have someone playing a like in drag, a woman playing one of them, <laughs> and then you have the other one who isn't like. A man playing a man, but is known in Japan to be a drag queen. Mm-hmm. You're doing something there. Mm-hmm. And then you have them sing a duet at the end. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the other thing that watching Hanafuda match, you really drove home, especially in the last scenes, especially like, because, okay, so this movie is. I liked this movie a lot. It's kind of weird to talk about because it's a very just like formula yeah. as a movie. Um, it's the I'm, genre. I'm not going to give you like, unless you want to, I'm not going to give folks like a plot summary. It's just. Yeah, I'll do like a quick one. Yeah, go for it. So um, the, the main deviation from the formula here is that the main character is a woman. Uh-huh. Um, it's played by Fuji Junko. Um, Which is the like, thing that I want to tie in with my point that I wanted to make about homoeroticism, but you do yeah. plot summary. Um, and so she is, uh, or you, the red peony. She's mm-hmm. the red peony gambler. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically, like, within red peony gambler, there's this overarching plot of her trying to, like, um, restore, like, her family's name. Mm-hmm. And this is, like, very just, like, episode... Like, in a, in a sense, like, if this was a TV show, people might refer to this as just, like, a really fucking good filler episode. Right. Or, like, filler arc. Because I where don't... it's, like, it's not about I, her restoring... Now that, <laughs> now that you say it, I'm like, I, yeah, there was a plot point in this movie, but I totally had forgotten about it. Yeah, it, it like... kind of just comes up as, like, a thing of, like, remember, you're supposed to be doing this. <laughs> <laughs> but... I know you're... What the side quest with this yeah. blind kid, but, like... Yeah. So, it starts with, there's this blind kid on the train tracks, and, um... Or do you saves her? By doing, like, a Superman jump. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's extremely superhero. <laughs> which is gonna, like, when we get to drive eventually, I'll, uh-huh. I'll tie this in even more. But <laughs> um, that'll take a while when we get to drive. Mm-hmm. But, you know, saves this blind girl, um, returns it to the mother, and then goes on to, like, basically stay, because she's just traveling around at, like, this, you know, Yakuza family. Um, and the, you can tell instantly that the, the boss here is a nice honorable boss cause he looks like a kind old man instead of like a, a grumpy old man. Um, and basically it becomes this like interwoven plot of the mother of the blind girl is like cheating at gambling, um, is her like husband that she's like estranged from is also this like fantastic gambler who's also cheating at gambling. Um, and essentially it just comes down to like, 
this whole resolving of like the various cheating that's occurring um and her finally going to like confront the the rival gang that's like clearly the bad one Mm -hmm. within the plot um they even steal the money that's going to be donated to the shrine uh (laughs) and then it's also tied up in like trying to save some some uh like there's this like woman who's like betrothed Mm -hmm. to the bad boss yeah and there's this i thought that was the a plot but it turns out that was the b plot and that was a little bit of why i got like a little lost in the plot in this movie but also it didn't matter because i was mostly just you know i was having a good time (laughs) yeah so basically she just comes into town there's like all the stuff going around with gambling and she like sorts it all out and then moves on yeah um um and so jumping to the very end to make like kind of my broader point about this movie and like homoerotics and all this sort of shit that we were talking about was that like there's a scene um you know with the plot where the guy wants to marry this girl but she is betrothed to the yakuza boss um like there's this big scene of or you talking to this guy and being like no like you're a university student and they don't teach you how to handle problems with swords in the university. I'll go, I'll do the violence. And then there's this other scene like shortly after where she's doing the violence and she stabs this guy. It's, it's the blind girl's dad. And she like tells him like your daughter can see as she like holds him in his arms and he's dying and he's like, take good care of her. Yeah. Um, And all this is stuff that like, I could totally see happening in Battles Without. All this is stuff I could totally see happening in Tokyo Drifter. Um, And because there is, like, gendered stuff here, but it is, is like, weirdly, like, sort of... There there are a couple conversations about gender, but it is, to me, a weirdly, like, ungendered movie. It is, like, totally, we just ripped man out, put woman in... And it highlights like Jiro how... when going to mm-hmm. or are you saying like let me go and fight is like I'm man enough for it. Yes. <laughs> and he's like he's literally talking to a woman in this moment being yes. like I'm man enough. For I'm it. man enough. <laughs> and, it, it... and she's like no, I'm more of a man than you. I will go kill them. <laughs> right. And so there's this sort of like neutral gender space that highlights how homo all these other movies about men doing this are <laughs> yeah. because because it, it sort of ends up like kind of net neutral because like they just don't acknowledge her gender a lot of the time whereas like once you put a man in it's just all these men dying in each other's arms yeah. and being like take good care of my daughter <laughs> yeah uh, yeah and you know i will you know protect protect your right to, or, or like i will help you marry this woman that you care about by going and dying for you or like you yeah. know potentially dying for you it makes it just shows you how the... homo everything else is by this being like you put a woman in and you didn't tip it over into being straight you just like balanced the scales <laughs> yeah <laughs> like there's a because the other thing that happens here too is like especially within the plot of this movie you get like a certain vibe of like rivals to lovers mm-hmm. with the i don't even remember his name but the like stranger who comes in yes to town is like the other stranger who rolls in basically along mm-hmm. with her um but is on the other side 
and it, like they're kind of like at odds there's like a part where they they duel and everything and then at the end he like is basically like no this this other side is so corrupt when they like stole the money that was going to be donated to the shrine that was the final straw and so now i'm turning against them i'm like betraying them and i'm siding with you mm-hmm. and we're like fighting back to back the, and again this would just happen in a movie where it would be all men uh-huh and now you're like oh like the, the they could then kiss at the end <laughs> the it's really amazing that somebody says okay this is our third red peony gambler movie this is the third time that she's rolled into town um, and, like, solved the problems. And, you know, not only is this the third Red, Red Peony Gambler, but, you know, they've made 80 Zatoichi movies. And, um, you know. So many fucking Zatoichi movies. <laughs> there's so many. Like, like, every movie at this time is about, you know, a stranger rolling into town. How do we spice things up? We give her a competing stranger <laughs> We get the protagonist of a different movie being like, hey, wait, I thought I was yeah. the guy. <laughs> No, and it's literally played by someone who would be, like, yeah. often a protagonist yeah. actor yeah. in, like, other Yakuza movies. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, like, it's part of what makes it exciting to you is mm-hmm. that it's just like, oh, like, there are basically two protagonists here. And, uh-huh. like, we're focused on this one. Uh-huh. But you could, like, very easily imagine the movie that's, like, Red Peony Gambler Guy Dan. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, so it, it, like, I feel like it is just one where, like, Mm. there are parts while we were watching it, and I was just like, this is the introduction scene. Like, there's the part where she does this big formal introduction to the, like, family that she's going to stay at. Mm -hmm. And this is, like, they're just these set pieces. Like, there's the Mm -hmm. essay that, I I pulled it up, let me (laughs) double check, I had it somewhere. I'll just give it a shout out. Um by paul schrader it's called yakuza ega um and he lists i think 18 set pieces which are like he basically says these aren't like every single scene but most of the scenes that you'll see in like a standard yakuza mm-hmm. ega um i'm just going to read a few of these one the prisoner comes out of or the the protagonist comes out of prison two the evil oyabun plots the takeover of the clan Three, the o- evil Oyabun's henchmen, all huffing and puffing, bully local merchants or workmen. Four, the gambling scene. Goes into more detail, but the gambling scene. Yeah. We saw a lot of them in this movie. It's called Red Peony <laughs> Gambler. <laughs> the, okay, we'll talk about it when we get to the stairwell. The other great thing about this movie is that you get the... There's a couple gambling scenes, but there's the one really big one. And in this... A third stranger rolls into town, <laughs> throws a knife in a dude's hand, kills a bunch of people, and then exits the movie all of a sudden. He's just gone. Yeah. <laughs> and it's amazing because you're introduced to him, like, the scene before this, and I was like, it, he's introduced in such a way that it feels like the audience is supposed to already know who he is. And I, I was like, was he in the first two movies? <laughs> Was he in, like, a different franchise that I'm not aware of? Mm-hmm. Everybody's just supposed to know. and So that, yeah, when he walks down the stairs, it's just a third stranger rolling into town. And he's like, hey, Red Peony Gambler, how you doing? <laughs> like, he knows her. Yeah. And then he rolls right back out. <laughs> this isn't his movie. <laughs> um, I'm, like, quickly looking up the actor and just seeing, do they list? Um... He was in Zatoichi, too. Yeah, he was in a lot. <laughs> this is uh, Tomisaburo Wakayama, which I think a lot of people in the, the U.S. would most know for the Lone Wolf and Cub movies. Um, but let me... It might... Honestly, yeah, so I would not... He, he shows up in multiple. 
Um, and yeah, so he plays... If, if uh, he hadn't shown up in the first two movies, I wouldn't be surprised if the thinking at the studio at the time is that, like, oh, well, we'll get the guy who plays Lone Wolf, and when he shows up on screen, everybody will be like, that's Lone Wolf, and we don't need to introduce him. Yeah. All, everybody will know, that's Lone Wolf. <laughs> um, but yeah, and so, like, some of it, too, is, like, like, I think this was kind of at the point where they're trying to compete a little bit with television as a thing. Mm-hmm. And so they were really leaning towards, like, let's just do these episodic movies where, like, you come back and, you you know, the story continues and it's the characters. And so, like, one of the other things that I mentioned was the introduction scene. And part of it is, like, setting up some of the... the it's like a thing that will happen at the beginning of the scene and it sets up a little bit of, like what's the vibe as this person's rolling into town? How's mm-hmm. this other family welcoming them? Mm-hmm. So like in this one, we get like, oh, people are starting to react. And you as the audience member might be like, oh, it's because she's a woman. They don't want to like let uh-huh. this woman Yakuza in. And they're like, oh, we heard that you're a cheater. Mm-hmm. That's why. Yeah. <laughs> you know, a way again that like feels like it's calling attention to the fact that it's a woman, but never actually saying it in a way where you could then easily imagine the script just being a man. Right. In the role. Um, <laughs> But the other thing that happens there is that it's just, like, it reminds you of who the character is in the movie that you're watching. Especially, like... Because also these actors will play, like... They won't... Like, she's not just doing Red Peony Gambler. She's doing a bunch of movies. Yeah. Well, and also, (laughs) like... And this happens... Well, it doesn't happen in 2021. But this happened in 2019. Like, this happened in the... I worked in a movie theater in 2013, um you would get people that would just walk up to the box and say, what's good? And you would get some, and like the person at the box, this is part of why they would let you see free movies. So that the person selling you tickets could say, oh, I really liked the new Hobbit movie or whatever. Or I really liked, I remember what year um, I was working in a movie theater because it was, I think the second Hobbit movie, the third Hunger Games movie and the prisoner. no, not the 1967 television show, but I think the Jake Gyllenhaal, Hugh Jackman movie. Um, this is what I remember. Anyway, yeah. uh, this has nothing to do with what we're talking about. <laughs> you get people saying what's good. And so it's, I feel like you need an introduction scene because somebody might just be like, let's go to the movies this afternoon and wander into Red Peony Gambler 3. And they're like, I didn't see the first two. I just wanted to go to the movies yeah. today. <laughs> And then you just get her, like, listing out who she is. Yeah. That's important. <laughs> yeah. Um, I just want to call out a few here. So one that does come up in this movie is the duel scene. We mentioned this. Mm-hmm. Two honorable Yakuza protagonists are forced to fight each other out of order of duty to their Oyabuns. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we had that. And then there's the, yeah. the coming together. Um, two that didn't come up in this, but I just want to call out for, like, when we get to... We, we've talked about Battles Without. Mm-hmm. Um the Blood Brother ritual. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Small mm-hmm. porcelain cups are exchanged in an elaborate ritual. If at a later point this cup is broken willfully, the formal Blood Brothers are now mortal enemies. You could have told you could have told me that this happened in Pale Flower, and I would have been like, "Yeah." <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't. It doesn't happen in Pale Flower, but if you told me, I would like, believe you. So this comes up in Battles Without, where we also get the breaking of the cup. Mm-hmm. And we get the specific scene that is the porcelain cups, mm-hmm. but they also do the literal blood brothers <laughs> drinking blood. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, 
the finger cutting, which the mm-hmm. finger cutting scene in the like the first Bells Without is incredible. It's so good. Um, and then the two that I want to call out because people sometimes talk about like Tokyo Drifter. Mm-hmm. They'll see it and they'll be like, "Wow, it would be great if." More movies just had the protagonists sing their own theme song and then like go a... to a final battle. And it might, this might be from a friend of mine, I cannot remember, but I feel like there's like a tweet that went around that got like a couple hundred retweets, like more pe- <laughs> more movies should do the Tokyo Drifter thing of having the character sing a song. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I have good news for you. Watch literally any Ninkyo Ega because basically every single one ends in... Number 17 here, the final march, the protagonist and one of his uh, and his one or two closest friends walk down darkened empty streets towards the enemy compound. The movie's theme song, usually sung by the protagonist, plays as they walk and then 18, the final battle, a tour de force fight scene where all the accumulated obligations are expiated in the grand finale of bloodletting. Speaking of bloodletting. Every single fucking yakuza ends in this. Ninkyoega. Speaking The thing is a lot of ones that come later mm-hmm. that is like what Criterion would be interested in are complicating the formula in a way where this doesn't happen mm-hmm. or is like abstracted in some way. But if you want this, just think out, seek out like literally any Ninkyo mm-hmm. Ega, any of the like, like sixties mm-hmm. and earlier. I, You'll just get this constantly. <laughs> I, I, this is the genre. It's why the genre is so fucking good. <laughs> I think it's interesting because I think like, like, mafia movies and crime movies are a huge genre in the U.S. as well. Um, and, like, because of the Hayes Code, um, like, there is a very familiar formula that also, like, because the Hayes Code, like, so heavily regulated what you could put in movies, it was kind of like you got the original Scarface, and then it was kind of just, like, a bunch of toothless bullshit for 40 years yeah (laughs) you know and so like it feels like in a lot of ways the i would have to think about this but it feels like in a lot of ways the godfather kind of becomes the urtext of crime movies in the u.s even though there was a long tradition of crime movies before that and because like the sort of progenitor of all this is like let's think about crime movies in this sort of high-minded way and be postmodern and be you know doing all this new different stuff um it feels like every crime movie after that in the u.s has to also do these things you know yeah um whereas like i don't know sometimes you just want to watch somebody not do that sometimes you just want to watch somebody commit crimes yeah (laughs) Um, the other thing I was going to say, if you like blood and gore, let me tell you about Red Pea and Gambler <laughs> number three, a Hanafuda match. Because the red sprays in this movie. <laughs> just, I love when, and this only works, CG blood never looks good. You yeah. have to do blood on, you have to do the blood on set. And I like when people don't even try to make it look real. I like when it's way more saturated and, like, bright red than real blood is. And it's just a fountain. Like, you just, like, (laughs) you know, get a paper cut and it's just like... Yeah. (laughs) And, like, like, a lady gets, like, her 
head like pushed through a window or something and like cuts her neck on the glass and it's just like blood everywhere yeah. they, and like, they like stab her through the window and then yes. like pull her through the glass yeah yeah um, and like the and last it's like, fight scene you're is not just, seeing like, the gore in terms of like they're doing like prosthetics to do it it's like literally just a ton of blood yes lots of blood <laughs> like a hose it's like yeah this is not how they do it but like it's almost as if somebody was just like standing off screen with a hose and it's just like <laughs> it's amazing it looks sick as shit also yeah. like we were watching a pretty like low quality transfer of this movie um and the colors were still like really good really saturated in the sort of technicolor way um i don't know if this was colored by technicolor i have no idea but um yeah it looks it, and um, it's it's very fucking good. The blood is very red and just all over the place. It's also, um, I feel like a lot of movies after the 60s and 70s, um, like I associate this with the Kill Bill movies. It's like, it, oh, if we're going to do blood, we're going to do blood in like every fucking scene. I like that this movie is like, you get your blood and you have to wait 20 minutes, you know? <laughs> We're going to give you a big, bloody, gory scene, and then we'll, you know, chill out and do more drama and more, like, character having conflict and honor and all those sorts of stuff. And then some motherfucker's going to get chopped up with a katana. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then we'll have a little bit more drama. Yeah. And then she'll sing her theme song while she walks, and then we'll just get a bunch of blood, and the movie will be over. Yes. It's so good. It's, oh my god, um, it's good. Yeah. But the I'm... the most restrained with the blood in the whole thing is when a man is like shooting blood out as he's telling her to take care of his like blind daughter. <laughs> yeah. Um. The I think the other thing I just wanted to bring up here because this is the most clearly this. Whereas like I want to set it up here because when we talk about some of the other movies it's going to engage with this in different ways, which is that this is very clearly what I've been referring. Like I've been saying Ninkyo Ega, which is a specific term for like the earlier Yakuza movies. Um, and Ninkyo kind of means like chivalry is often how it's translated. And the core tension of them is this idea of like your obligation versus your humanity. Um, so Jiri is like your obligation. And then um, Ninja or Ninji is your, your um like the humanity like what what is it that you want what is it that you want to do like what's your sense of morality um and so the core tension of these movies which happens a lot here is like here is what the yakuza boss like the system is asking you to do here's what you want to do and then it's the tension between those that like creates the drama um and that's like on full display here in a way that later movies will like in some way engage with to mm -hmm. some degree. Mm -hmm. Um, whereas this is just clearly doing it. Um, and the one thing I want to bring up here as part of this is there's this essay called on Ninkyo that was like, you basically can't find an English translation of it other than my boss or not my boss, my Oyabun, <laughs> my professor <laughs> translated it, <laughs> which is, um basically making this argument that like especially that older form was in some way like resubstantiating this idea of like you go to the movie theater mm -hmm. and you have this release valve mm -hmm. where you watch someone who will kill the bad boss 
Mm -hmm. And they're allowed to do it because they're a gangster. Mm -hmm. They're like a bad person. And you would never do that. And so what happens is that you like, you go and watch a thing where you you fucking hate your boss or your landlord Mm -hmm. or whatever. And Mm -hmm. then you watch a movie where they go and they kill the boss or the landlord or whatever. Mm -hmm. But then they're like a criminal. Mm -hmm. And so you like get the like release of like seeing someone stand up but it's always couched in this way where it's like still wrong within the frames of society Mm -hmm. and that you would never do that because you and this like also gets figured a lot in this this movie of like Mm -hmm. she is the one who is like i can go do this because i am the like the woman who has like been dealt the bad hand and is cursed to like walk around as a yakuza right i cannot be the mother she this girl because i'm a yakuza she tells um, the one guy, like, you're a university student. They don't teach you how to handle problems with a sword. And she tells the um, blind girl when she can see again, like, you'll be a beautiful bride someday. You yeah. know, I can't be a bride. Uh, and she's, like, clearly, like, projecting, like, the things that she wants and that you, like, the viewer should want, quote unquote. Yeah. Um, onto this little girl. Um but she can't have those things because she's a criminal. And yeah. criminality is the sort of, like, thing you are born with, almost. Yeah. Unless she can, like, act out our desire to rebel. Mm-hmm. But in a way that is, like, distinct from us. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the argument is that, like, this core formula is, like, inherently conservative mm-hmm. in the, like, final message of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, which I think is true, but they're also just really fucking fun movies. Yeah. But I think... Knowing that is important for, like, yeah. when we start talking about how are later movies complicating this, a lot of it is specifically around there is something inherently, especially for Japan, like, leaning into Japanese nationalism, which for Japan then mm-hmm. also goes into fascism, mm-hmm. about, like, the construction of a genre where an honorable thing to do is to kill yourself for your boss. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, like, yeah, like, this is the um, <laughs> this is the conversation I was kind of having about, uh, like, Gojira in um, 1954 and the first episode of Godzilla is Not Dead is that it's a movie about, like, you know, who are the Japanese people post-nuclear um, attack? And it's just like, um, like, how are we as a nation going to handle crises? And, um, like... It comes to a very conservative answer, and that's bad, but also it's cool when the giant lizard romps around (laughs) Tokyo, and I, as a viewer, can hold two things in my hand that, yes, this is conservative, and also I like the big lizard. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So yeah, this is conservative, but also I like when the hot lady kills a bunch of people after singing her own song. Um, anyway, I think that's most of what I have to say about this movie. It's a really fun movie to watch. Um, I recommend seeking it out if you haven't. Um, but also it's just extremely the formula. So we have two stairwells to rate. We do. Also, I want to briefly touch on, we didn't, we skipped this segment. Um, uh, I watched a movie in between episodes Mikey and Nikki. There's another. There's repertory screenings about that. It's another very good episode. I won't touch on Mikey and Nikki too much, but there is a stairwell scene in there, um, and it's good because it's right at the very start. The two main characters are going down the stairs, um, not quite. Maybe like 
15 minutes in, characters are going down the stairs, and they're leaving this hotel, and everything after leaving the hotel is just like a shit. Just like their lives just totally <laughs> fall apart after this scene. Um, and so I, I don't have a good grade in mind, but it's a, probably a B plus, you know, like it it hits what you want it to do. Yeah. They, they go down the stairs and then their lives fall apart. <laughs> <laughs> um, so stairwell for, oh, also while we were watching the movie, I did put Metal Gear Solid 3 uh, Snake Eater <laughs> on the list. <laughs> Gave that an A for the latter scene. Yeah. What a thrill. <laughs> I mean, that is definitely the stairwell scene mm-hmm. of Metal Gear Solid 3, so. Um, anyway, so stairwell scene in uh, I Carry You With Me. Um, there is a scene where... Um, the the main guy whose name I still cannot remember. It's like Ivan he, or something. Ivan. Ivan is in the apartment with Gerardo and Ivan's mom and ex-wife and son are like, Hey, come let us in. So he comes down the stairs and you get a shot of the stairs and he has this conversation where the <laughs> cat just turned the T V on. Or you turned the T V on. The I don't cat know. did. The cat did, okay. Um and so, um, the fuck was I talking about? He <laughs> so comes down yeah, the stairs, has this conversation where the ex-wife and the mom realize that he's gay. You know, it's raining outside. Everything's gone to hell. And he comes back up the stairs and his boyfriend, Gerardo, is, uh, sitting on the stairs and was eavesdropping and they ascend the stairs and kind of, like, decide to, like, take their lives in a new direction. Um... And I feel like it's good. I feel like it's good. Like, it hits all the things that you want stairs to hit, I think. Yeah. You know? And the shot of him sitting on the stairs is fairly good. Yeah. A movie that we were fairly critical of a lot of the shots. Yeah, I feel like the way they frame the stairs is, like, passable, at least. Um, I'm maybe, like, a... Maybe, like, a B- minus because, like... It's got the stuff that you want, but the stairs themselves aren't that spectacular. It's kind of just any apartment stairs. And and it doesn't really the take m- the time to, like... Like, what's good about the shot is him on the stairs and mm-hmm. not really the stairs. Yes. Um, the, the thing that's good about the shot is him eavesdropping. Yeah. Um, which he could be doing anywhere. So I'm going to give it a B-. I'm going to give it a B-. I, I don't have the right one. Um... Do you want to talk about the stair scene in Red Peony Gambler 3? Yeah, so this is... Um, so they've already figured out the whole cheating situation with the mother of the little girl. Mm-hmm. And the the guy who's like, you know, girlfriend has been betrothed to this Yakuza boss, basically. Um, basically says like, hey, uh, or is... So he has, like, one where he gets, like, swindled, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and then somehow it comes about that it's, like, we're going to have Oryu and then this, like, god of gambling, who's mm-hmm. the father of the little the little blind girl, mm-hmm. um, basically face off. Mm-hmm. And 
so the way that the like mother of the blind girl was cheating is she had this like card that could flip. We should establish this man is the biological father of the blind girl. This other guy that we were talking about dying in her arms is like the sort of adoptive father of her, I think, if I'm remembering right. Okay. I don't I think it was the same person. Anyway. It, no, it was the same person. It was the yeah. same person. Okay. I'm, I'm on the same page again. Um, but yeah, so he, he comes and they're like doing this. And the whole thing is that like she's dealing the cards. Um, and so they are like, then she wins and they're like, you must be cheating. And they're like, no, we're not cheating. Prove it. Um, and he reaches out. And then this is, you, you briefly described this scene, but is like reaching out with like to prove that she was cheating. It's so good. And knife just out of fucking nowhere goes right into, not the not the actual like god of, not the father. Mm-hmm. He's not the one who's reaching out. It's this, like one of his like lackeys or like one yeah. of the other, yeah. Some guy associated with the family who's in a, in a suit, whereas like the god of gambling is in like a robe. And so, yeah. um, um, and this guy, like, purely exists in the plot to have a, a knife go into his hand. Uh-huh. And then uh, Tommy Subaru descends the stairs. And, and takes the knife out. Yeah. And you see the fake card. And you're like, he was going to plant a fake card. Yeah. And so, like, stops at the moment where he's going uh-huh. to plant it. And so that they could then reveal that yeah. he was trying to do this sleight of hand to plant the fake card and, like, frame her for cheating. Uh-huh. Um and yeah, it's just a. I it's mean, fucking sick. The stairs aren't the part that's great about it, but it's a fucking great scene. The, the stairs aren't the part that's great about it, but the and then f- and then he like kills a bunch of them. The fact <laughs> because you could, you could have him say run in from another room, run into the front door, and do this. The fact that he's running down the stairs and does this perfect knife throw um does make it cooler yeah it does <laughs> the, the stairs do add to how sick it is yeah um it also like makes it very clear that he's like literally in that moment just like coming down the stairs yeah right it's not like he's like been hanging out yeah waiting for this moment to do the reveal it's like literally like by chance mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah he's just coming out of fucking nowhere to throw a knife in this guy's hand <laughs> and then he will leave the movie after this scene. Yeah. <laughs> what do we want to give this? I have no idea. It's a sick fucking scene. I don't know if it's a good stairwell scene, but it's a Maybe sick fucking should scene. Should we give it like a C plus? Because it has nothing to do. It has very little to do with stairs, but it is good. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I feel we'll good about a C, a C plus. plus. There we go. <laughs> All right. Um. We're almost at two hours because we're fucking idiots. I mean, we did talk about two movies. Yeah. Um, uh, okay, I'm pulling up the... Oh, yeah. This is not what I'm going to do. This is not what I'm going to do. What I'm going to do is... Uh, I'm going to go to the Criterion channel. Between episodes... Uh, I So I've been using a friend's um, Criterion channel password, and I got my own. Um, partially because I want to support the Criterion Collection, um, and they have a new neo-noir, like, cause like, if you, if you're not familiar with Criterion Channel as a streaming service, they do, like, they rotate stuff around, so like, 
things come in, things go out, they do big presentations. Um, and so this month they're doing a presentation, like, uh, you know, they're doing a bunch of neo-noir movies. Um, I'm going to zoom in slightly because I'm zoomed out slightly. Um, I've got a couple movies I've seen. The American Friend is good. Um, Blood Simple is good. I blow out, which I talked about earlier. Manhunter is great. Man, Manhunter's fucking good. Um, the one that catches my eye most is Body Heat, but we might have Nora on for that because I think it's kind of funny to get Laura on to talk about a Lawrence Kasdan movie. <laughs> uh, we're not going to do Chinatown. Um, do you have a strong feeling about The Long Goodbye or The Big Sleep? Not particularly. Let's do... Um, I'm just looking at these movies, and then I'm going to make a decision. Oh, wait. Night Moves? Is, Night Moves is a good movie, right? I think people like Night Moves. It's got Gene Hackman in it. I love that yeah. guy. Uh, you do love that guy. I do love that guy. Let's do let's do The Big Sleep, because it's got Robert Mitchum in it, and I really like Robert Mitchum, and would just love to watch Robert Mitchum. No, 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 no. Ignore everything I said. We're doing Wings of Desire. Cause it's, oh, okay. Yeah, Grace was like, you should watch uh, Wings of Desire. It's got Bruno Ganz in it. Um, and it's the same director as The American Friend, which is yeah. a movie I really like. Um, I think that movie's kind of long, but we we just did Mulholland Drive, but like, whatever. Let's do Wings of Desire. Yeah. I mean, if we want to do the abridged version, we can just watch the Ghost in the Shell episode. <laughs> <laughs> This is. I, I think mean, it's we, only like twenty-two minutes. So. Oh no, Wings of Desire is just over two hours, so we're fine. Okay. Um. Yeah, it's uh, nineteen eighty-seven. Windwinders, Vim Vendors. Vim I don't Vendors. know. Starring Bruno Ganz, Peter Falk. Um, I don't really know what it's about. Uh, Grace told me, um, that this movie is devastatingly hot pretty trans as well and mostly about architecture so it sounds like an us movie yeah <laughs> uh so yeah we'll do we'll do that next time where can people find you on the internet um people can find me at fox mom nia or garfred aloud i forgot to do garfield right aloud again two days in a row i'm sorry people yeah um you're gonna have to do garfred aloud the return the return <laughs> Um, I think oh, if they also make, I have a I have a podcast called Ghost Divers. I think if they do a fourth season of Twin Peaks, they should call it the Return of the Return. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Where can people find you? Nowhere. People find me on Twitter at autumnal underscore coffee. Uh, all the podcasts at exportodd.io. Listen to the Batman one; it's good. We're going to talk about a movie on that ne- on the next episode of that. Not as you listen to this, because whatever. There will be. We're going to talk about Batman 1989 pretty soon. The next episode that we record, which might not be the next one that you, the listeners, hear. Anyway, we're done here. Okakoro <laughs> is real.
like capes back on the rack. Bella Lugosi is dead, the bats have left the bell tower, the victims have been bled, bed, velvet lines, the black box. Bella Lugosi is dead.
Thank <laughs> you.